And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stratton and Gary K. Wolf, flying solo for a while, on the Coot Street Podcast! And it's just us now for the first time in a while. In a while, in a while, we've had all those wonderful guests. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for more guests that we're going to be talking to soon. We plan um, to, unless we have a complete technical breakdown again. Ooh. Hmm. Well, well, we'll be very careful when we're going off to World Fantasy. Are you looking forward to World Fantasy? I think I am. I might be. I'm considering looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in four weeks' time, I think it is, we'll be there, right? Yeah. Because you know, you and I and our, our, some of our friends are leaving a little bit early. So about yeah, four and a half weeks till we're actually in London first for uh, the Brighton World Fantasy Convention. And... Although I wouldn't say it too loudly, much scotch will be drunk and rich food will be eaten and some sights will be seen. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, maybe you know, we'll, we'll, we might do a podcast or two. And then tre- trekking down, sorry, training first class down to Brighton uh, for the convention where we will definitely be podcasting and doing all that mad convention stuff. Should be fun. It should be a lot of fun. And one of the things we're doing, which I wish I could do more often, and I think of people who have schedules should always do, is to do some sightseeing and non-conventioning thing. I mean, Brighton is supposed to be a lovely seaside town, I presume, even at the end of October. Yeah. And conventions, and I will say the same thing as I think I did in an earlier podcast about world cons, um, are, are usually not the most attractive thing about the gathering. That sounds like an odd thing to say. Yeah. The most attractive thing about going to any convention is hanging out with pals and having good meals and drinking lots of scotch or wine or, or bitter, and, and having wonderful conversations. In other words, I've never been to a convention that was completely able to spoil itself by being a convention. <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. Though I have to say, I, I've, as you'd be aware, there's been some controversy around this convention over the last few weeks about the cafe clutches and all this kind of thing. And for listeners who have not followed along, for some town now, large conventions offer what they call cafe clutches, where a group of people can sign up to sit down with an author and talk to them about whatever they want for an hour. Mm-hmm. And these are usually complimentary events that happen as part of the con- of, of the convention. And this year, the Brighton World Fantasy has decided to charge for it, and as a res- you know, I think it charges at five pounds or something. And as a result, a lot of people have said, "Well, I, I won't do a, pot- a cafe clutch then because I'm uncomfortable about it." So. Well, I mean, it's uh, there. Yeah, you know, there, there are controversial things about every convention. I heard yeah. something about the Brighton convention increasing the maximum attendance from what it traditionally is. Um, there may be efforts to monetize it. I mean, my basic point about conventions is yes, there, there, there is something bizarre about the idea of charging for a coffee clutch. Since I've been to coffee clutches. As a matter of fact, I've been to yours, and you've been to mine, and I've gone to coffee clutches for friends, and they've come to mine, knowing that I needed to have a friend there, because otherwise I would be sitting at a table with maybe two other people while <laughs> I don't know. Well, well that's Nancy for people. That's at the next table with 30 people. Yeah, that, well, that's it, because you and I are down at the, pra- the pragmatic end of the spectrum, uh, Gary. But for the more well-known writers, where, you know, you can cert- or people, you can certainly get more than enough for several cafe clutches worth of people signing up. So there is, a, I guess, a crowd management thing. Uh, it does speak, I think, to, and I'm not sure what I think about this, the, the comparatively exclusionary nature of world fantasy compared to a world con or something. I'm not 
sure what I think about this, but there's a view out there that world fantasy is more exclusionary, less fan oriented, and 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 it is. Though, again, I'm not. There's another article out. Uh, there's an article out there on Strange Horizons a while ago. I don't know if you read it about getting your prose out of my fan work, where a young woman who had spent a lot of time in media fandom mm. had, had said that she had moved across to what she called book reviewing fandom, something I'm not really familiar with. Okay. And she was very uncomfortable with authors popping in on her blog or somewhere and commenting because in media fandom, there's a great culture of um, there being a really solid divide between pro and fan. And there are all kinds of legal reasons for that as well as for commercial ones. Whereas, of course, in science fiction and fantasy, there's a long, close relationship between pro and fan. Right. So that makes that different. Yeah. Well, the the the, the couple of the only couple of comic conventions I've gone to, which are I gather somewhere between media fandom and and and, and literature fandom, uh, it's very clear that part of the feature, part of the um, promotion of these fan of these kinds of cons is that you will only be able to see this particular comic book artist at this booth at this time. You don't usually have to pay for it, as I recall. Yeah. But the idea of separating the artists from the from the fans is is you're right. It's 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 much more absolute there, and that probably is an outgrowth of of the San Diego Comic Con, where you do have movie stars and directors and Joss Whedon's and uh, Summer Glau's and people like that who have to be basically protected from fans. But I guess it does talk to though this idea that there should be some distinction between pro and fan. There's this feeling that world fantasy is a more pro event rather than a fan event and, I, and there's a certainly it is a, certainly a smaller event and it, its culture is certainly more publishing oriented i think that mm -hmm. that's fair um but i've never seen a situation at world fantasy itself once you get there where there is a clear distinction made between if you want fans slash readers and prose slash writers or whatever i don't see that distinction being made practically well, I, at the I, end. you don't see that distinction and one of the things you see in our field i think more than most is you have uh, a lot of people showing up at these conventions who are more or less transitioning between fan and and author uh, Maybe. somebody who is and some of these people we've had uh on, on our podcast who, who go to their first convention by the second convention they've sold a couple of stories by the fourth or fifth convention they've been nominated for a nebula that kind of transitioning from being a fan to a pro isn't going to happen in hollywood it's not going to happen uh, you're not going to become a movie director or a tv star uh, because you go to conventions in our world if you go to conventions and want to be a writer sometimes you can be yeah yes you can very much in fact not even sometimes quite often mm -hmm. uh, i can think of any number of people who i've known over the years who have made that transition quite smoothly and, and readily and it's why I understand it's difficult from a pro perspective to look back at their own evolution from fan to pro and see any real difference. You know, they're kind of going, well, we're all fans as well. And they're going like, no, no, no. So that, that, that idea that you're sort of pro, and I guess really the issue in my mind when we're talking around this, and it wasn't what we were going to talk about when we got started, hmm. is the issue of making something seem exclusionary. And this will tie into something later on. Um, does an event like World Fantasy put up a put up a facade that looks exclusionary to other people, that potentially risks asking them not to partake, make it look like it's not their event? I must say it's got a very fusty-looking exterior, 
Well, it does, and it, it historically has. And there's a there's also been a, a a number of I've heard a number of comments that it's essentially an old man's convention. Mm. Uh, that the first several years honored mostly old men. I think a lot of that has changed in the last few years. But anytime you put a limit, an upper limit on the registration of a convention, whether it's World Fantasy or, or WISCON or ReaderCon, it's by definition exclusion, ex- exclusionary. The idea is to get the right people and every... Whoa, 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 The right people. I, 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 meant, I said that quite deliberately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the goal of a Worldcon, as they all boast in all of their publicity, is to get the most people. See, I never felt... Worldcons <laughs> love going to five, six, seven thousand people. Well, I know, but I never felt that World Fantasy was about getting the right people. You know what I thought it was about? It was mm. about getting the right size of event. Well, that could be. Uh, I mean, I remember I've, I've spoken to the original organizers, you know, David Hartwell and et al. And David certainly had said to me at one point, the point was that at a certain size, a convention's um, social n- nature changes. And it goes from being a more close-knit, collegial, small-scale event to a big, sprawling thing. And that was one of the key characteristics of World Fantasy. It wasn't that they couldn't have grown it to a 3,000-person event. It's that they wanted it to be a 750-person event because that was, if you like, the kind of event they enjoyed, which is fair enough. Which is reasonable. And I don't recall them ever particularly, other than saying that they were, I guess, aiming at, at pros a bit, saying there's any exclusionary right people kind of thing about that 750. It's just the first 750 who are willing to fork over a couple of hundred bucks to get in the front door, which, is, of course, is an economic exclusion, and I understand that. Well, exactly. Uh, but that economic exclusion works for world cons as well. Um, the, I, I guess ex- the right people, I was using the term ironically, if anybody misunderstood what, mm. what I meant by that, <laughs> does have to do with the fact that uh, you are not going to be able to create as many sub-communities in a world fantasy convention as you are in a world con. No. Uh, and th- it, at least at some some conventions like ReaderCon, that's very deliberately stated up front. This is, we, we, are, we are not going to be talking with costuming or gaming or how to be a fan or media or video or films. We're talking about reading books. And that's a theme convention, which is, as long as it's very clearly uh, defined that way, I have no problem with yeah. it all. I mean, uh, the, the thing that I find that it's hard for me to characterize about this is that I so resolutely don't go to the convention anyway. That it, well, that's the same thing. That's what I was saying. A convention... <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the, like... The, I don't know how many world the, fantasies I've been to, but it must be 10 or something. And I don't know how many world fantasy program items I've been to that I've not been on, but it must be 10 or something, you know? I tend to uh, go to the things that I'm on, mm. and if I have good friends who ask me to be in something that they're on, uh, I'll do that. But otherwise, we have a general understanding that, you know, you don't have to come to my panels because you're my friend, and I don't have to come to your panels because you're my friend, unless yep. there's something that, you know, we could really contribute. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, this looks uh, to be like it's going to be my ninth consecutive, or eighth consecutive world world fantasy, I think. Really? Isn't that because, I, I mean, I, look, I, I like the convention, I like the size of it and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I would do. encourage anybody who you know, wants to go to a convention that they could consider World Fantasy. This year's looks great. I'm, there's some things that I'm particularly excited about to get a, away from it from exclusion before we go back to it again. Uh, and then I've got to talk about how that I was concerned about the fact that there was 
wheelchair access was an issue which concerned me about or, or access. So mm. anyway, that was an issue. I need yeah, to cut that leather out. I'll see if I remember to. Anyway, uh, I'm very very excited that Susan Cooper is going to show up at World Fantasy. Um, with I guess her new, her new her new novel is already out, isn't it? It is. Uh, yes, came out a couple of months ago, which I've not seen yet. But this is one of the things that uh, that. This is a name that came up yeah. uh, even when I was a judge of world fantasy. Like, here's somebody who is uh, not the most prolific writer in the world, yeah. but who has had a, an astonishingly profound influence on almost everybody who reads modern fantasy yeah. and every writer I can think of. Everybody yeah. grew up with The Darkest Rising. Yes. Um, the, uh, so I'm excited about that. Some... Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I will well, say, I'm... just as a quick aside, the part that I'm, I'm still concerned that they've never given a, a lifetime achievement to Mary Stewart, and she is still alive. Oh. I know. Oh, I'm just looking down at the the World Fantasy Convention uh, stuff, and Terry Pratchett's showing up on the, uh, as well. Excellent, that's good news. Terry's a nice guy with his new ten book contract. Yes, uh, yes. Which which I think is wonderful. I th there's there's something uh, that I think needs to be I think corrected about 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 Terry Pratchett's Alzheimer's. What I've heard from people who are in touch with him is uh, is that. Of course he can sign a 10-book contract, and of course he can write 10 more books. The, the, the symptomatology he's having is mostly motor skills, doesn't have, has, has little to do with his writing. This is what I've been told by friends of his. And th there were a couple of comments uh, on Twitter and on blogs that, oh, isn't he being optimistic signing a 10-book contract? And there's no particular reason to think he is at all, yeah. any more than anyone else his age signing a 10-book contract would be. And he's already announced that he's intending to hand it over to Rihanna. So I dare say, somewhere in there, you'll start seeing books by Terry and Rihanna Pratchett. Just like we're seeing books by Terry and Stephen Baxter now. Yes. The other thing I'm excited about, uh, as, as I wander all over the place, we had such a clear plan for this podcast, Gary. We did. Um, we have. We're, we're going to get to that plan. We'll I'm excited that Alan Lee is a guest of honor because it means we're going to get to see original Alan Lee paintings. Well, we're going to see get to see Alan Lee, which is something I never expected to be able to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, Alan Lee paintings, Gary. Yes. Alan Lee is going to look like an ordinary guy, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, he my might look bizarre. I don't know. It, when we went to Saratoga Springs, Gary, you know, I met Moebius, right? Uh, Jean Giraud, okay. who's a lovely guy, right? Lovely guy. Right. But they had Moebius paintings, original Moebius paintings there, and the thing, and that was exciting. You know, so it's, it's 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 rare. It's, it's it's this will get me to the art show, and um, frequently at these things, I don't go to art shows because I it's not a field I keep up with. It's not a field I think is. I mean, I, I admire fantasy art. I admire science fiction art. I've never understood the relationship between that and what what art critics and art historians consider to be the mainstreams of modern yeah. uh, painting. So uh, th th there's always that awkward thing. Yeah. Uh, but to get back to to get back to our theme, <laughs> we were going to talk. I think we were going to talk as we have before about uh, loose cannons. <laughs> well, the toxicity of cannons. And in what way are, are in what way could cannons be viewed as toxic? Okay. I l let me put it to you. See if I can frame the discussion that I that I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. The original concept of a literary canon dates back to what, the early 20th century. It grew out of uh, things like the Harvard you know, shelf, the Harvard, of books, five the Harvard shelf of books, 
those sorts of Harvard things. Harvard Classics, the Great Books Program from yeah. the Encyclopedia Britannica and the yeah. University of Chicago. All of the, which were of a very, very narrow, frankly, cultural background. They were, if you mm. look back at the original classics, there are there are very idios, a far more idiosyncratic slice of history than you would anticipate, and mm-hmm. some idiosyncratic choices within that slice as well. It was very white Anglo-Saxon male. Yes. Very, very, and evolved, continues to evolve down a white Anglo-Saxon male Protestant kind of path, though that has split more in recent years, and. It's, it, it was seen as defining what was overwhelmingly good. And at least outside of the science fiction field, I've not seen a lot of discussion that says, you know, that thing which we thought was good that was in the canon, now you know we look at today and it's not, so we can take it out of the canon. You know, it's like, once you get in, there's not a lot of going out. How, however, at least in, in, in the, that canonical you know, five-foot you know, five shelf of books thing at, at Harvard... Most of those works were 50 or 100 years old or more, and some far mm. older than that. There's a lot of talk, or there's been a lot of talk since I became active in the field, and I'm sure before that, starting from probably the 1950s forward, about forming a science fiction canon. In such a young field, for a start, you don't have the perspective of time to know how good things are will be seen over time. Mm. You've got a, you don't have an agreed set of criteria for determining what is good or is not. I believe, and True. it becomes this exclusionary thing, and we get caught up in this whole argument about well, potentially or not about you know to understand the field, you have to have read this. This is what the field is. Um, you end up limiting things enormously and dating them you know if depending to the extent to which you cleave to the idea of canon or not and it having any meaningful relevance today you know um i'm I'm really not sure about it you know i I look and ask myself if, if if work is canonical does that mean it's in print and read um well, there are two ways of, of approaching yep. that, I guess. One is, is that question, is it in print and read? Um, and and one, of the, one of the canon formation things which I know something about, having read a long essay, was, was the Great Books Program, which was started by the University of Chicago and by um, published by the Encyclopedia Britannica. Which was, and people would actually sell these sets of great books door-to-door back in the yep. 50s. And it turns out that um, they, they, they probably did more damage to the canon than anything else because the principle of of selection for those things of whatever we can get in the public domain. Which yeah. means if you're reading, let's say, Dante's Divine Comedy, you're reading some horrible 19th century translation of it because they could reprint that for free. Yeah. Um, so it, the footnote there is that forming a canon can actually damage the works that you want to include in the canon because they're not going to necessarily look as good to people today. The other question is this. Is a canon formed... Um, and I'm, I'm going back to something that C.S. Lewis once wrote now in his book on experiment and criticism. Is a canon formed by the books that people actually read, or is it formed by the books that somebody thinks people should read? Oh, I think it's probably formed by books that people read once upon a time that they're still telling people they ought to read. And then it's, perpetu- ah. it's perpetuated right, by a bunch of people who don't read those books but keep echoing that they should. That's okay. That's that's a kind of elitist attitude. I, I, I think it's 
it's unfair to blame the books that are included or excluded from a canon from the snobs that may want to include or exclude them. But then you said, uh, then what you're saying is, and I think this is correct, the canon formation process is both vague and imprecise and exclusionary, and that's the problem. When somebody declares that they are forming a canon, uh, then I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a toxic attitude. I think it's exclusionary. I think it's elitist, and I think it's patronizing at the very least. And I, having worked with the Library of America, I can at least defend their approach, which is that they never claimed that they were establishing a canon. Sure, sure. What they claimed is that they are reflecting the canon that has emerged over decades and, in some cases, centuries of readership. Um, what happens, though, when a, cano a canonical work is problematic? That's not unusual at all. But does that um, mean that now should not be a, can a canonical work? How do you take a book out of the canon? Ah, good should, question. This comes should up you, or are you misunderstanding what the canon is when you try to? Um, well, if, 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 if the canon is finite, if you, if you view the canon as we have 100 slots and... In order to book a new book in this slot, we have to take another one out. This actually has been an issue in universities, at least in uh, the United States and the UK, and I suspect in Australia as well. When you're doing a kind of literature survey and you realize at some point that your world literature class is all European white males, and then you think, well, we really ought to look at some classic Chinese and Japanese, and we ought to have, we certainly ought to have women represented, and we ought to have Africa represented, which is almost always represented by Chinua Achebe's things fall apart, then the question is, okay, what are we going to bump out in order to fit this thing in? Mm -hmm. That's a dangerous view, I think. Uh, that, that's, that suddenly we, we realize that uh, Henry Fielding didn't treat women quite as um, insightfully as Jane Austen did. Does that mean we drop Henry Fielding out? Uh, if you look, uh, uh, getting closer to home, if you realize that Edgar Rice Burroughs seemed to have no clue whatsoever as to what to do with women. Um, he didn't even seem to understand how they work biologically. Um, does that mean that his works don't belong in the canon anymore? Well, it, yeah, they belong somewhere off in the canon because by the one measure I've mentioned earlier, they keep getting reprinted. Sure. Uh, they keep getting read. People keep discovering, no matter what we say, and there are not very many science fiction historians or scholars these days would say, well, you really have to read A Princess of Mars, uh, but people still read it on their own. So that kind of canon formation is going to go on. Yeah, but see, that, and that's fine, right? That, that's fine. I mean, anybody who wants to read anything for their own purposes, that's that's their affair. But it's when you say, you have to have read this work to, to understand the field. Have you read the canon? You know, or... I, I mean, I... Yeah? Well, no, no, I... I, I we, we, we talked to... Um, well, in a recent podcast, we were talking to Lily Yu, and she was concerned about not having read everything. And it occurred to me that nothing having read stuff would not improve her fiction in any particular measurable way that I can think of, um, because her fiction is not necessarily uh, meant to be in dialogue with that. Cory Doctorow, on the other hand, deliberately writes fiction which is in dialogue with yes. specific earlier works of the canon. Yes. So the answer to that question, I think, is that for some writers, for some writers the canon is important and for some writers they aren't um what do you do with a well i'm going to say two separate examples i'm going to ask you whether you think they're canonical works and, mm. and then i'm going to ask you why and what, what you do about certain aspects of them the first one is robert heinlein's very famous novel 
The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is seen as standing up as one of his best novels to, you know, over time. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. There's a lot less of that sort of wonky later period politics and writing that came in that was very kind of wonky. It's just uh, on the edge of the precipice there, yeah. And it's at the at the very end of the whole juveniles period. The juveniles are much more focused kind of books, I think, than the later books for various reasons. But I mean, there's sex with fourteen year olds in that. And, and, and when uh, when someone actually says, whoa, that's statutory rape, you're going, no, there's no rape up here on the moon. They're perfectly... Mm. And you're going, like, dude, that's just really problematic. And I mean... It's creepy. It's creepy. Yeah, it is, the, the, it is the, the, deeply squicky. And maybe you wouldn't... I don't know this, but maybe you wouldn't have felt that way in the wild, wild west in the 1820s or something. I don't know. But oh my goodness, you would today in the Western world. Well, by the same token, you can find, uh, going back to uh, Burroughs or any number of writers before 1940, you find appallingly racist attitudes in science sure. fiction and fantasy. You, find, you have yellow peril stories, virtually a sure. subgenre for, for 60 years there. Um, do those things get uh, demoted from the canon because they are uh, offensive or because they reflect a value... A, that, that was widely held at the time by people, and, and we don't hold that value anymore today. I don't know. I think you have to understand that works that are um, fairly ancient, and it's worth keeping in mind that the moon is a harsh mistress is like 50 years old at this point. Well, that's, um, yeah, I know it is, but, but then, okay, here's the thing, though. If you go back and you read the description that went, around, that went out with that Harvard shelf of books, the, can, mm-hmm. the canon, a canonical work, was like the best and brightest and most wonderful work. These, I mean, these are the shining lights of literature, the shining lights of science fiction. So if you're going to present a book as a shining light of science fiction, if somebody is, and certainly for Moon as a Harsh Mistress, they are. I mean, it won the Hugo Award. Um, it's reprinted all the time. It's in the Golan's Masterworks. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. This is a shining work of science fiction. But it's got some pretty strange attitudes. Some of the prose is somewhat clunky. Well, you know? and the same thing's true with um, a, a great deal of Asimov, but the prose is not very... I guess, uh, I guess the question is this. The problem is this. When you talk about a canon, apart from genre, if you, when you talk about the Harvard five-foot shelf of books, or you talk about the Great Books Program, or the, or the French, uh, uh, the library, I can't remember the name right now, you're talking about just books that, by sheer excellence, ought to deserve to be read. Well, not say ought to be read, but deserve to be read. When you yep. start talking about that in, in terms of science fiction, you're talking about a specific notion of a genre yep. that means, okay, um, we, can, we can look at the moon as a harsh mistress because it's a shining example of science fiction. However, it also has serious problems in other areas. But as science fiction, the science fictional parts of it, it's significant. Um, no, but As that's it. I mean, the significance interesting, and I love the idea that these are things that deserve to be read rather than that you have to re- read. Mm. I think that's a really compelling difference to me, I think, and I like yeah. it a lot. But then the question is, if a book like The Moon is a Harsh Mistress has problematic gender is- issues, and, and I confess right now, I haven't reread Moon is a Harsh Mistress in 25 years or so. so I haven't looked at it so, recently you know, look, And I don't recall it being particularly clunky, ri- you know, clunkily written, but it's been said of late. Um, if it's not astoundingly well, well you know, beautifully written, and if it's got problematic attitudes, are its real 
benefits, not so much that it deserves to be read, but that it was of, of historical importance. It's and, a and, and does historical importance grant you a place in the canon? Well, that's the problem when you start forming a canon or talking about a canon that relates to a particular field of literature. There are works that most people would probably agree belong in the science fiction canon, let's say a good deal of Wells, a good deal of Verne. Um, and there are, you, you can certainly find problematical attitudes in all of those. That's not why they're in the canon. And as a matter of fact, you could even find serious flaws in characterization and pacing and even prose in, in both Verne and Wells. But conceptually, because we think of science fiction as a conceptual genre, they're very important. Uh, the time machine is, uh, very few people would argue that the time machine is not a canonical work. Um, and that's because so much science fiction has, in one way or another, derived from it. These are not questions you have to ask when you're talking about general literature, when you're talking about poetry, you're talking about the novel, or you're talking about drama. Uh, these are questions that you only have to talk about when you're talking about something very specific. The canon of mystery writing would be the same thing. The canon of fantasy writing would be the same thing. Um, it's because you have some notion of genre, and that really bollocks up the whole notion of what a canon is. Well, I guess that's it. I mean, the thought that occurred to me as you were talking was, are we mistaken to attempt to think about there being a science fictional canon? Is that narrowing the concept down below the level at which it actually works? I think one of the reasons we started talking about science fiction canons, and people have been talking about it for at least 50 years, is because of a general sense which gets reinforced every once in a while that no science fiction work or no fantasy work is going to ever be included in the canon. That is the canon that Harvard would put on its five-foot shelf of books and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's a kind of defensiveness. Well, we're not we're not going to get on the big boys. We're not going to be able to sit at the adults' table. Mm -hmm. So we're going to we're going to have our own table and we're going to have our own canon over here. And if somebody a little itty bitty happens, cannon with a ray gun on top. But exactly. And every once in a while, you know, somebody who is connected to science fiction or fantasy or has written science fiction or fantasy, occasionally they get invited to the grown-ups table. William Golding can go to the grown-ups table. Doris Lessing can go to the grown-ups table. Does that mean that, okay, um, they're no longer part of our canon because they're sitting with the grown-ups now? Pretty much. Is, Golden, I mean, is, is Lord of the Flies a classic science fiction work? I don't think it's perceived as being a work of science fiction particularly. Within or without the science fiction? Within community. the science fiction field. Could be wrong. But I gather you're right. You know, mm. The other book I was thinking about would be Ender's Game. The, the Orson Scott Card book that, mm -hmm. ca that came out in the mid-1980s. Now, by any objective measure, that is a canonical work of science fiction. It won, the, the, won the Hugo Award, won the Nebula, mm -hmm. Nebula Award. It was wildly positively reviewed at the time. It is, now that it is pushing towards 30 years old, the best-selling science fiction novel in North America, Gary, still. And has pretty much every year for the past 15 years been That's true, even before, selling. even before the movie uh, was being announced. That's true. So this um, book, which has some pretty weird attitudes in it, really, when you begin to unpick it, mm -hmm. and some real problematic stuff about it, is undeniably canonical science fiction, or not. Well, by the by the measure we were mentioning earlier, does a book stay in print? Does it continue to attract new readers? Does it get read generation after generation? 
by that definition of a canon, it does. Um, and that's, it's, it's easy to dismiss that definition as saying, well, that's a completely populist definition. That means that, you know, uh, that, that for 30 or 40 years, Mickey Spillane would have been the canonical American writer because he was in print and sold more than anybody. But he's dropped away now. You don't, you don't see people reading that. Scott Card's, uh, and, and unless he absolutely manages to immolate his reputation with, within the next few years, which he might. If he um, hasn't already, yeah. If he hasn't already. No, that book is probably going to continue to be um, read for, for generations. It's a very powerful kind of narrative. It's a very problematical narrative. It's the kind of book, if you read very closely, you start thinking about it. My argument is, in terms of science fiction readers, books like that are important to read because you need to understand how you're being manipulated in them and what other writers can do with them. You could argue that one of the, 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 the touchstone work of hard science fiction, which we've talked about before, is, is, is The Cold Equations, as Tom mm -hmm, Godwin. Mm -hmm, yeah. Nobody defends that story at all. It's not defensible as a story. It's manipulative. It's gerrymandered. It's structured so it can only come out in a certain way. It's illogical. It doesn't work by the terms of hard science fiction that it sets for itself. And yet... Everybody still uses that as a touchstone because it's set up a kind of dialogue within the field, which is still going on today. Which means it's historically important. But does that mean it's you get into? Do you get into the canon by being historically important? Well, it depends on. We're back to what what we mean by canon. Are we talking about books that books and stories that people read on their own, or are we talking about books and stories that define the dialogue that those of us involved in the field are part of? I don't know. I mean, I'm tempted to say, do you know what we need to do, Gary? We need to set up the official Science Fiction Canon Foundation Commission. We'll put up a website, we'll get a panel of people, and people can apply to have their work added to the canon. And if we don't say it is, then it can't be in. There you go. And if we and, and we can review it and then throw it. You can apply to us to have it reviewed. And if we agree with your, your application, we will throw it out of the canon. How's that? Oh, oh, that's a good idea. We we'll rationalize it. There you go. Right. No, there's the other. That, that, that's that raises another issue about the canon, which is, and this is an issue that comes up with the Library of America occasionally. Is it, can you really decide that living writers belong in a canon? Don't you have to die first so you can't influence the, the votes? <laughs> Possibly so. Though, given that there is no actual mechanism to create the canon, given there's no actual official benchmark of what the canon is. And given mm -hmm. that until recently science fiction was too young to have a, a decent body of dead people to reprint uh, in the canon, uh, it's very hard to make that distinction, isn't it? I think so. And I, uh, well, at, at, at this point it is because we're dealing with we're, we're dealing with a field which uh, we, we, we've just lost Fred Pohl and, and Ray Bradbury and Jack Vance within the, the last year. And these are people who were at least reading the field within the first few years of its existence as a separate publishing category, mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing. So if we're not dealing with a with, with a field that has any any significant history compared to anything else. I think one of the problems with the dialogue notion of the canon, that is, okay, there is this edifice of science fiction. There is this giant Lego construct of science fiction. And you, uh, young woman, cannot cannot put another Lego on top unless you've memorized all the ones that come below. That's ridiculous. That's insane. That's, that's well, the bizarre. other thing that's insane and is also one of the truly problematic and toxic problems is if you imagine in your mind a metaphorical enormous bookshelf on which mm -hmm. the canonical works are stored in neat chron chronological order, right? 
And so there's a bottom shelf which is constantly being extended with a new book being added, right? And then you place a reader in front of it and say, you can't get to everything else in the field to read before you've gone through that. Then the canon really forms this barrier to reading more broadly in the field. And that's really troubling. Yeah, that's troubling. It becomes the entrance exam, which we've talked about before. Okay, you're not allowed to read Charlie Strauss unless you've read Heinlein. That makes no sense whatsoever. And also, more to the point, you're not allowed to value Charlie Strauss unless you've read Heinlein. That, that, that's the, the truly troubling part. It's like someone will say, I've read Nora Jemison and I think she's the bee's knees, right? And mm-hmm. you, to which the only rational response is, well, yes, or I read it and this is read her books and this is what I thought. But if you're turning around saying, well, hang on, you're talking about Nora, Nora Jemison, but I don't want to talk about her until you've talked to me about, well, for her fantasy books, Robert E. Howard through to everybody Howard. else, right. or for, for, for science fiction at least, through, at, the, at the least, through the history of women in science fiction, before we get to this person again, which is just killing and stifling discussion and evolution and change. Oh, and maybe, absolutely. maybe this I, I, is the real issue about toxicity, Gary. That that when it begins to stifle evolution and change, then it's a problem. I think that is a problem. I think, and, and you're absolutely right because we, it's easy to pick on saying, well. You need to have read Zelazny before you write a, a modern fantasy. You need to have read Heinlein. You need to. Uh, you could as easily say, well, yeah, you need to have read Marion Zimmer Bradley, and you need to have read Le Guin, and so forth and so on. You don't really need to have read anybody. That's that's the problem with canon. And I was having a conversation with a friend uh, just yesterday about some of the some of the works that a lot of people would regard as canonical were written by people who were more or less reinventing science fiction in their own terms from the ground up. One name is Cordwainer Smith. Uh, and I think every generation there are writers who, they may read a lot of science fiction, but they're not responding to it. They're inventing it as though nobody had thought of it before. I think one of the things that makes Cordwainer Smith as bizarre as he is to read, I think it makes him accessible to non-science fiction readers. And he seems to be unusually accessible to non-science fiction readers. Is because everything you need to understand Cordwainer Smith is in Cordwainer Smith. He's pretend, he's writing as though he invented the genre. Yeah. Uh, the first, probably the first writer to do that, I would say, uh, was Stanley Weinbaum. Uh, he may have known the field, but you read Weinbaum's stories, and it's like he has invented it. Um, recently, to some extent, you could make that argument about Ted Chang. Mm-hmm. I think you could make the argument about David Marasek. Um, in other words. A lot of important science fiction works just reinvent the genre from the ground up. And we couldn't count those as canonical in a historical sense because they're not part of this dialogue, really. Are works that are truly in dialogue with the history of the field and that are really commenting on previous works, are they more exclusionary to readers? You know, if you were to turn around and say... Charlie Strauss writes Seton's Children's Say, right? Which is yeah. his nipples went spung science fiction novel where he's kind of commenting on the whole um, this is what's happening with um, uh, you know, with, with, with the whole sort of Heinlein tradition. If you've yeah, not right. read the Heinlein tradition, can you not comment? Can you not appreciate that book? Or is it just some aspect of it you're not um, picking up? Well, you could ask the same question about Old Man's War, about Scalzi. Yep. And the answer is, in my mind, the answer is very simple. If the author can get away with it, no, you don't have to have read anything else at all. Yeah. 
In other words, if if the novel is if it works for you, if it's if it's a novel which in some bizarre way is completely dependent on allusions to an earlier writer or an earlier novel, that's a different thing. Yeah. Uh, but but by and large, if, if you know the, you look at uh, Strauss or or Scalzi and. If the books that they're writing are entertaining and self-contained, they imply the tradition. If anything, they might lead some readers to go back and check out Heinlein later. But the yeah. idea that Heinlein is a prerequisite for that is just it's, – it's bizarre. Because you, you can make the same argument that uh, most 19th century literature, England, America, Australia, wherever, made a number of uh, – would make endless references to the Bible, to classical literature, to uh, – to the Book of Common Prayer, all sorts of illusions that today we don't even recognize anymore. But basically, you don't need to read the Old Testament in order to understand Moby Dick. It helps. Let, let me flip this on its head for a second. If I walk into my local bookstore in a chain, mm -hmm. in, in, in a shopping mall, to the extent that you find such things anymore, and I go to the science fiction section, right? Uh -huh. Most of it is made up of copies of Games of Game of Thrones. Right. And, and a few Charlene Harris books I haven't sent back yet. And a few other bibs and bobs. That's it. Right. There'll be some Wheel of Time book there. Yeah. No, not anymore. Okay. And so, not over here, no. And so canonical works aren't readily visible to the average reader, particularly in those kind of places. Do we, within the field, give the, the canon more weight and consideration than it actually merits are we are we distorting the lens by saying this canon is the exclusionary issue when actually it's comparatively irrelevant i think it may be I, th I think the latter may be the case it may be very irrelevant people who are most concerned about canon are most concerned about studying the field and the people who are involved in the field either as students as i have been and you have been or as editors or as critics or whatever we're kind of a special subgroup. And one of the things I think it's always important to remember, and that we get reminded of every year when the Hugo voting comes up, and for that matter, when the Locus voting comes up, most of the people who are reading these books are not involved in our community. They're not involved in these discussions. They're, they may go to conventions, but maybe the likes of us don't ever meet them there. Uh, and they're making their own decisions simply based on nothing but the fiction. Um, so, yeah, when, when we say, okay, this is what you need to read, and I certainly hope I don't say that. As a matter of fact, remember when we used to do our thing, books you don't need to read? I'll expand that to say, you know, if somebody is a successful science fiction writer, if they write a successful science fiction novel today, and you've never read a science fiction novel before at all, you ought to be able to get through it and make sense out of it. And if it's a good novel, it ought to win you over. Well, that gets down to that question of whether it has to be a good novel first or a good science fiction novel first, does it not? Because yes, it does. We, we constantly come across works which have, as we've called them before, you know, the entrance examination. And the mm -hmm. exa entrance exam, by and large, can be fairly – So it's, it's a fairly reprehensible kind of an idea. Except – and here, here's the opposite the, – the counter-argument for it. Sometimes it offers literary or science fictional thrills – yeah. That you don't get otherwise. I mean, to me, the great example of the science fiction entrance exam is Glory by Greg Egan, right? Okay. Which, which is Good a story example. that was in my anthology, The New Space Opera, that I did with Gardner a couple of years back. Uh -huh. And it opens with a really gosh wow sense of wonder chunk of stuff, which some people find completely impenetrable and I found completely thrilling. 
because I'm a hardcore science fiction writer or reader, and so that's what reader, I'm interested yeah. in. Um, I had an interesting discussion with Charles Brown about that very story for that yeah. reason, because it has a spectacular symphonic opening that the story really doesn't need later on. It's, it's simply science fiction. I, we're going to do science fiction. It is a science fiction overture. Yeah. Uh, and it's spectacular. And my point was, this is brilliant for people like us because he's just kind of reimagined everything from the molecular level up in, 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 in this uh, inventing a spacecraft. And yet, th then you get into a story for which that is at best a minor prerequisite. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it, that that's a good story that looks like an entrance exam, and it looks like a story that, okay, here's a bunch of really Neat stuff for science fiction readers, after which I will give you a story which you other non-science fiction readers can also read. There's, a, <laughs> there's something a little bit elitist about structuring a story that way, I think, frankly. It may well be. I mean, I always thought that uh, was a cryptonomicon has an element of that in it. Uh, the Neil Stevenson novel, because of the section where he gets into some abstruse mathematical descriptions of, of the turning of bicycle wheels which I'm yeah. just like, blah, 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 and yet um, hilarious, right? It's, if, it's if you understand delightful, it. yeah. I mean, he's, he's clearly writing for a certain kind of geek. Yeah. Um, and, and Stan Robinson is very good at that stamp. But one of the things that it seems to me is the responsible of a novelist, the responsibility of any novelist, science fiction or not, is to novelize what you're trying to describe. In other words, to be able to write it in a way which is intriguing and inviting to um, to readers who may be encountering your work for the first time. Actually, I think Neil Stevenson is an example of somebody who has a lot of non-science fiction readers. Yeah, well, yes. He, he wouldn't be hitting the bestseller list uh, without that. Um, okay, let's see if we can sort of, because we have lots to talk about, and we're, we're, get, we're actually progressing uh -huh. through this as well. Um, what is what is the official Code Street position on canon, Gary? Do, do we build our own? Do we tell you to, to ignore it? Do we tell you to look at it as some minor kind of side issue? Um, is it a an actual barrier to? I mean, if I you could actually write the, the if you could list the canon and there and it's proven to be as it almost certainly would be a uh, white Anglo-Saxon male preserve. You know, is it something that needs to be I torn down a, and rebuilt? I spent several months, many years ago. Uh, uh, I've been approached. I've been, I've been approached by Martin Greenberg, um, um, bless his heart, and uh, one of the one of our great anthologists, really. Um, and he was had made a contract with some publisher to do the 100 best. This is a publisher. I forget the name, but they they had done the 100 most important figures in history, and then they did the 100 most important Jews in history, and they did the 100 most important women. In, and so, so he came to me and said, why do we do the 100 most important science fiction books in history? And it was books, not writers, and they were to be ranked. Number one, number two, number three. I mean, it became really for, for the most important Jews in history. I think Moses came in third, which was interesting. But anyway, that was an interesting question because then you're talking about, okay, we're going to define a canon and we are going to somehow uh, define find this canon in such a way that will make sense to people who haven't read a lot of science fiction. And what I concluded from that was that, and this is, this is what I think my position on canon forming is, 
that if you consider yourself a student of science fiction, if you want to understand the history of the genre, if you want to be a reviewer or a critic or an anthologist or an editor, then perhaps you really ought to um, read these, these earlier books. If you're simply a reader who enjoys science fiction, I don't think you have any obligation to read anything. I think that's true. Um, there's a an app for the for the iPad or iPhone or whatever that ranks that, that, that gives allows you to discover new music, and it gives you almost like a an image of a galaxy if you like, little light nodes with names on them, and some of them yeah. are bigger and some of them are smaller, and I can see where if you are looking at the galaxy of science fiction books, say, Dune is going to be a large looking. Uh, ball of gas in that galaxy. Yeah, it's going to be a, su a, a super giant star. Super or giant. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, fair enough. But that's without a qualitative thing being applied to it. Yeah, right. And I think if you look at it, at, at, at your entire field, then it, it helps if you remove some of that qualitative filter. And I also realize, even as I'm saying it. That, of course, perspective is all. There is a particular gaze that you have, to put it in that, those terms, so that, for me, I am an Australian white Anglo-Saxon male, and so I see the world from a particular way, and I'm aware of certain things, and that means that there are other, other uh, books mm -hmm. and whatever else which are, are, do not get the, the prominence they deserve in my worldview that I need to expand. So you know, I'm aware that that's an issue anyway, even when, when you use this, this metaphor for describing it. But... Talking about books which deserve to be read, acknowledging books that are historically important, mm -hmm. I think that's valid, but not quite equivalent to canon formation. And so, approaching canon warily is very healthy. No, I think it's very... <laughs> I understand now where the idea of the toxicity of canon comes from, because... Uh, when you talk to enough people, you realize that, to some extent, everyone has to form their own canon. Even every science fiction reader has to form their own canon, and sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. Because you and I have both had the same experience, uh, and I've had it fairly recently, of talking to somebody who will go back and they will look at something which is an acknowledged canonical masterpiece like Dune, and they find out, well, there's, there's, it's, 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 the prose is not really that skillful in a good part of it, and uh, there are some really sort of wonky power issues in it, and the ecological stuff behind uh, the whole conception of the novel doesn't really hold up by the time you get to the second or third novel. So, to some extent, there is a real problem uh, with, oh, hold on, I'll be right back okay. in one moment. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm probably going to cut this a little bit out, re re you know, listeners, really, because there's no point in me just talking at length. I mean, I could turn out and say that my canon selections are better than Gary's. Let's face I'm, it. I'm listening. I'm listening to this now. I'm totally. I, I, your, your canon selections are no better than mine at all. My thing. I, I have stuff in my canon that nobody's ever heard of. I don't want a canon that looks like the canon. Oh come on! How many people are going to put the witches of Karis in their canon? I'm not, but I might. Just I don't know perverse. that I want to know what you're going to put in your canon, Gary. Um, no. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, the, 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 here's the other problem. You have just actually touched on something that was mentioned in conversation elsewhere, which is written up mm -hmm. at great length and very articulately by our friend Paul Kincaid, mm -hmm. and is the most valid part of this that comes to point, and that is that canon is personal. 
Yes, I believe it is. I totally agree with Paul. Um, and I think to some extent, the reason to read a lot of science fiction is not because you ought to, but because you might want to decide whether you think this is part of your personal canon. Yeah, that I get. I mean, I look at, I think, for example, in recent times, uh, Joe Walton's, among others, is a canonical work of science fiction for me or fantasy for me, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But right. I appreciate other people didn't like it and it's not part of their personal canon. Uh, Neuromancer, which came out at a particular time in my life, was, is, remains canonical for me. I think it remains canonical for the field at large for various reasons, but I think a comparatively my small group of works are genuinely canonical. Yeah. Well, again, that goes back to the question of, are we talking about the history of the field? What changed the field? If you're, if you're talking about canonical works, and I'm not sure canon is the right word for this, works which change the direction of the field, works like Neuromancer. Um, and it's, it's hard to think of very many more recent than that, but uh, then that's, that's fine for those of us who are students of the field. That doesn't mean that everybody has to read Neuromancer. Neuromancer is um, astonishing for 1984. It's a little bit less astonishing 30 years later. Sure. I'm sure that's true. I haven't reread it in the last 15. You know, so I would have to go back and pull it off the shelf and actually reread it, which in this day and age is problematic itself. But but but, but there, there are problematic things about it, obviously. There are probably but, but but the point is, it's an astonishing act of imagination in that what it did was set, mm. set a kind of groundwork, not just for way the not just for the way that science fiction would imagine itself in the future, but to some extent the whole culture. I mean, the whole cyberspace culture was influenced by that book in a way that very few science fiction novels have ever influenced the general culture. One of the other issues, which we're not going to resolve in this conversation, but is germane, is that um, when we talk about the history of the field, it, that in itself is a slanted kind of a thing. Uh, the way it's written up and recorded and discussed is biased from a particular perspective. Uh, I mean, obviously books like uh, Justin Labrileste's the, uh, the the Battle of the Sexes or whatever it was. I forget, I forget the name. Battle of the Sexes in science fiction. Sufficient, yeah. Uh, the, uh, that sh showed that the way the history of what actually happened is being recorded is itself slanted. So when you talk about the history of the field, that's a slanted thing, you know, because there's not an objective history in mm. place, you know. And whilst there are some things it's very difficult to argue about in terms of their importance. Whether it's a true reflection of, of, of history, if you like, is debatable. I mean, uh, The Forever War is an undeniably important book, and we, you could make a, a, a great case for it. But you, you merely just have to look at the simple fact that after all these years, it's A, in print, and B, still being actively discussed to suggest that that's the case. There are a lot of other edge cases, though, where it's less clear. And there's always that issue about, well, if you had such a strong white Anglo-Saxon male gaze creating this history and this canon through the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. And even if it began to ch ch you know, change in the 60s and 70s and 80s, nonetheless, that was still there. Are we even starting from an accurate and fair and reasonable perspective of what history was? I, th I, think, his I think history is being re-examined, and I think Justine's book is one of the pioneering books in doing it. Um, and, and again, the only parallel I can think of is when you uh, look at uh, at what happened with, for example, mainstream literature, that there was a lot of 
uh, in American literature, which is something I know a little bit about. There was, you know, there, there was a rediscovery maybe 30 or 40 years ago of Kate Chopin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and who had written The Awakening, there was a rediscovery of um, the um, uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. So, and these were absolutely important writers who it turns out had some impact at the time and had been more or less uh, left in the dust by traditional literary history. Uh, and science fiction, starting with, with Justine's book, has, has made some effort in that direction. And I think to some extent there are uh, writers now who are more or less beginning to be rediscovered, Catherine McLean being one of them who's still around, uh, who you know were actually there before Le Guin and and, and Russ and Tiptree. Yeah. Uh, and so, to, to that extent, I think that's a healthy that's uh, a healthy sort of exercise in literary history. Is there a woman science fiction writer of the 1940s other than C. L. Moore or Lee Brackett? who is going to suddenly be rediscovered as someone who utterly changed the nature of the field. I doubt it. Uh, it seems to me that Moore and Brackett were the, into some, well, to a lesser extent, Judith Merrill, were very, very important. And yeah. I think their importance is now being recognized. That's true. But I, I don't also, think you're going to revise the whole history of the 30s. Well, yeah. I also wonder to some degree if the, the truth of it is as well that such were the barriers of the day that people were prevented from being part of that history. In other words, they didn't get the opportunity to play, so they weren't part, an, you know, an important part of the history because they literally weren't allowed to be. I think that's true, but you can't write a history of unwritten books. No, you can't. No, you can't. Um, and I'm intimately aware of that. You know, so we're not going to get to the end of this this subject ever, are we, Gary? All right. Well, we probably shouldn't because I think it's an important issue. I mean, it, when you mentioned somebody like Lee Brackett, I was reading a. Um, doctoral dissertation this afternoon, which spent a fair amount of time talking about her novel, The Long Tomorrow, which which I did put in my 50s volume, but nobody thinks of Lee Brackett as a canonical writer. Maybe we should rethink that. Maybe, um, maybe we should rethink Catherine Moore's Doomsday Morning. Maybe these, not, you know, these might be, from a modern reader's perspective, as defensible as some of the novels that were coming out around the same time, which would include things like the early Frank Herbert novels, like yes. And this, of course, touches on what should have been one of the main topics of this podcast, which was forgotten writers of science fiction, which I, well, I guess we'll get to another time. Uh, I would touch on that. There is actually a corollary that occurs to me that maybe writers who should be more forgotten. That's a good. That's a good topic. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, arguably, well, arguably, well, the field could do with Robert Heinlein being a little bit more forgotten to give us perspective. I think that's. Well, n- not forgotten at least, but maybe may- maybe not uh, turned into such a stone monument. Well, yeah. Um, there, uh, there, there was a lot of stuff. There, there are writers that I would like to see that, that aren't forgotten that I'd like to see sort of revived in a way. Henry Kuttner is one, for example. Actually, Kuttner and Moore both, together and separately. Because there was a sense of playfulness and humor in science fiction, which Heinlein occasionally touched upon, but by and large, that's not what he's remembered for. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I will say to some degree, ac- ac- the actual passage of time does this for us a little bit. I mean, I can't help but think that in 1975, when I was 11 mm-hmm. years old and I walked into a bookstore, you found every Robert Heinlein book of ever on the shelf, mm-hmm. pretty much. In 1985, you still found pretty much every Robert Heinlein book ever on the shelf. By 1995, a batch of them were beginning to disappear. Yeah. By 2005... The holes were getting pretty significant, 
And now in 2013, well, first of all, we'll set aside the fact that you know, yeah. almost none of them would appear in any bookstore at all. And probably the only ones that do here in Australia, at least, are the ones that are in the, the Golan's Masterwork series. Right. So two or three books out of an oeuvre. And I dare say that a whole bunch of them are actually completely out of print. I would be quite, you know, be quite willing to, to see that as being the case. Well, no, I, mean, I might be wrong. He may be selling buckets and I just don't see it, but that's not... He may be. I mean, he's, he's not doing it in the States. I mean, at least you're living in a country that still has bookstores. Um, <laughs> but, but by and large, that's what I meant about the populist canon. The populist canon means that somebody, apart from any consideration of literary history or quality, is going to figure out that, okay, if we reprint this Heinlein novel or we reprint this Edgar Rice Burroughs novel um, or we reprint this Robert Jordan novel, it's going to sell. And to some extent, that over time does form a kind of canon. The kind of really awful pot boilers that we used to complain about as being bestsellers, by and large, haven't survived over the decades. Um, I mean, again, you go outside science fiction. Nobody reads Mickey Spillane anymore. Nobody reads Peyton Place anymore. Um, in 10 years, nobody will be reading Fifty Shades of Grey. So, so, so the really trashy books eventually disappear. Uh, and the same thing is probably true with science fiction, which means if people still decide, okay, I want to read A Princess of Mars, there's something in that that's important to the way we apprehend the genre. Yeah. And, and the same thing's true with Heinlein, and the same thing's true, frankly, with The Left Hand of Darkness, which yeah. I'm pretty much convinced would stay in print on its own apart from any kind of yeah. critical push by the likes of us. Oh, well, I don't think people like, like, like us would make any difference to that. But... Um... I, I do think coming around again to your idea of books that are deserving to be read, maybe the approach we should take to canon is that if there are literary or historical reasons why a work deserves to be read, then it should be allowed into the canon and leave it at that. Um, I still object to the idea of, a, of, of, a, of drawing a line in the sand. Um, oh, oh, you mean if what's in the canon and what's out? Yeah. Yeah, I, I must say, I chuck, I, I've, yeah, I do too. I, I put stuff in and I throw it out and I put it back and I throw it out again. And I've got stuff that's only in the canon because I read it when I was 15. Well, yeah. And, you know. I've, got, I've, got, I've got favorite novels which I don't want to go back and reread because I know they're not as good as I think they were. Yeah. Well, and I, I really don't want to go back and read. How, how about this? How about saying, that, okay, when, when you get certain key works like this, as deserving to be read, I think that's that's the minimal condition. And the second, deserving consideration for your canon. Mm. Yeah. Well, Not well, for the canon, but you should read this. You you may decide this is utter crap, and because uh, I've I've run into any number of friends who have completely bounced off Herbert and Heinlein. Yeah. Sure. Um, and for for reasons that you can't gainsay, you can't really say, well, you know, you you're you're obviously mentally deficient because you don't understand Heinlein. Um, so, so you can't argue with that. And, and, and there are people who just, even today, uh, and even younger readers, who think A.E. Van Vogt, who think Slan and, and the world of Null-A and the boys of the Space Beagle are just totally cool, even though they're completely insane. <laughs> the insanity is part of what makes it work. It may be. This is not a discussion that we're going to ever conclude, Gary. No. We might pick it up in a bar in Brighton. Might, maybe for the moment we should let anybody who's crazy enough to listen to this <laughs> 161st episode of the Coon Street Podcast to 
continue on with their lives and we can come back again another time to it. And we will talk in another week or so then. I look forward to it. Take care, my okay, friend. Same. Goodbye. Goodbye.